we are going to be looking at the grammatical principle, and I would wager that not everyone here is a huge fan of grammar, perhaps, but I will say it, <laughs> you do? That's good. It does come with a payoff, so you'll, you'll be the better for it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning and this opportunity we have to gather. We pray that you would bless us, bless us with the truth of your word. Give us the understanding, Lord, of these principles so that we might better explore and understand your word. Focus our minds and attention and nourish us, O oh Lord, as we need it. In Jesus' name, amen. We began looking at the literal principle of interpretation, and that is that we must read the Bible according to its normal literary sense. And then we began examining the contextual principle of interpretation, and this is the fact that we must read the Bible in its context. The literal principle of interpretation is saying that we must read the Bible as literature. We must let it speak for itself. We must basically read the Bible in light of its plain meaning. And the contextual principle is saying that if we're going to get the authorial intent, that we need to pay attention to both the literary grammatical context, which is what comes before and after a word. And we need to acknowledge the fact that God's word is coherent and there is a thought-for-thought cohesion that's running throughout the text so we don't just parachute into the text and read our idea into it. And then also another dimension of this context of Scripture is the historical cultural context. There's going to be details in your text that are going to be sometimes assumed by the original writer. He's not going to stop and take the time to explain to you all of his cultural historical understanding, everything that's in his mind. Because this was an understanding that his immediate audience shared with him. And so we need to do diligence as interpreters in the 21st century to say, what historical cultural details could the writer be assuming that I need to understand? I need to work a little bit to explore. And that's honoring the authorial intent. It's honoring that the meaning which God inspired is the meaning that he gave to the original authors, not simply whatever pops into our head first thing. So that's the literal principle and the contextual principle. But thirdly, a third general principle of hermeneutics, by general we mean it applies to all genres of scripture, is the grammatical principle. The grammatical principle. And this is to consistently follow the rules of grammar. Now, some people say grammar doesn't matter, but it really does. (laughs) Sometimes it can result in some embarrassing sorts of things if we don't pay attention to punctuation and uh, syntax or word order and things of that nature. So don't let anyone tell you grammar doesn't matter. You know, when I was courting Anna, Anna and I were in a relationship. I was in Queens and she was in the Midwest. And as we were progressing in our relationship, even with social media, texting and email available, we both enjoyed the, the opportunity to write letters. And I think that was one of the best things was just getting a letter for me, getting a letter and being able to open it up and just parse, break down all the words, all the things she was saying and pay very careful attention to the meaning in that letter. And if you've had a similar experience, it may not have occurred to you, but in carefully pondering the meaning of a letter from someone you love, you're really paying careful attention to the rules of grammar. 
whether you realize it or not. It's a beautiful thing to see and realize love in the medium of letters, but it's a far more beautiful thing than to experience divine love in the medium of divine letters. That's what the Bible is, 66 basic letters that God has given to us. And if we are God's true children, then we will truly love God. The Bible makes that plain. And if we love God, we will love his words to us. The scripture also makes that plain. But if we love his words to us, we will also pay careful attention to the meaning of his words. And you can only do so by paying attention to the rules of grammar. So what is grammar? Grammar means the art of letters. It is the study of what words mean and how they function and how sentences are formed and how their structure communicates meaning to us. We have seen it is context that ultimately indicates what a word means. It's how the author is using his words that has the final say in its meaning. But it's the rules of grammar now that help us understand how a word functions in its context. So context and grammar are going to have overlap. They're both important to our understanding of the Bible. How many of you would say in this room, I'm just curious, that you're not a big fan of grammar? (laughs) All right. Is that it? Nobody else? Everybody else is a fan of grammar? Okay, maybe some on the fence. Well, what I would say is I honestly never really appreciated grammar until I became interested in the Bible, until I really began studying the Bible. And I was a, I tell people I was a math and a science guy, and then actually I studied Greek in college. And ironically, that is when I fell in love with grammar, even English grammar. Well, I know that's because I realized then that studying grammar is a way of understanding better the words of God. And I want us to realize that this morning. So whatever your perspective on grammar, language and grammar, I want to encourage you to maybe consider a little differently this morning. And so in your outline, the first thing we have is the basis for grammatical study. Why should every Christian study grammar? Seems like a strong statement. Every Christian should study grammar? Well, let me give you five reasons to study grammar. First of all, the study of grammar exhibits the orderly nature of God. You know, John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We think in words. We communicate with words because God thinks and communicates with words. Genesis 1 makes it very plain that our God is the God who speaks. He's a God who communicates in words. And in a profound sense, he is the word. So there's, there's certainly the orderly nature of God that we explore when we're studying grammar. But along with the fact that grammar exhibits God's orderly nature and way of thinking is this. Grammar, secondly, is itself a gift from God. Grammar is a gift from God, and it's a wonderful gift. Anywhere you go around the world, you will discover that everyone communicates using the same basic rules of grammar. It's fascinating. There might be different orders in the sentence of subject, verb, and object, and all that, but everyone uses the same basic elements, which is amazing. How is that? How is everyone around the world using the same basic rules of grammar? Well, it is because these rules come from God. The Bible tells us God authored language because he is a God who speaks. And by the way, God also 
differentiated, he diversified language incredibly at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And he did a good job, didn't he? Thirdly, why should we study grammar as believers? Well, a study of grammar respects the fact that every word of God is pure, as Proverbs 30 verse 5 tells us. I believe you will learn to love the words God chose and the sentence structure of the Bible. Not just what God said, but the way he said it in light of all the rich meaning that biblical grammar really unfolds to us. So as you study why God says what he says, the way he says it, you will appreciate the Bible more. I have no doubt of that. Fourthly, a study of grammar is necessary for discerning authorial intent. This is something I can't stress enough, but as we've begun with our study of hermeneutics, we, we emphasize the fact that the meaning of the Bible is the authorial intent of the original author. It's not whatever you feel it says, however you apply it, those things can be important. Application of the Bible is important to our lives. But before I want to apply it, I first need to discover what? What does it actually say? What does it actually mean? That is the objective meaning of the text. And a study of grammar is necessary for discerning that. Now, we can't possibly cover everything or master everything that we need to know about the rules of grammar in a 45-minute lecture. But if you'll pay careful attention to the details we're examining, my desire is that you would even just see the importance of these details and, if anything, learn a little bit of what you need to think about more when you come to the Bible. And if you will come away from this thinking, wow, I need to pay more attention to these particular details. Maybe I even need to brush up on some of my grammar. I think that's great. I think that's the whole point of what we're doing here to get us thinking more deliberately about the Bible. So in this week and next week's lecture, we want to give you a crash course on how to to parse a sentence. That means to break down a sentence into its parts and to begin thinking critically as to how each one of those minute parts relates and comprises the whole. And basically, if you can't parse the grammar of a text that you're examining, then you can't really analyze its message. And if you can't really analyze the message of the text you're examining, then you can't really properly understand its meaning. Now, you might think I'm overstating the case of grammar to say that. Basically, if you don't know how to break down a sentence of its meaning, you're you're not going to properly interpret the Bible. But I want you to think about this, that even if you're not a grammarian, even if you're not a fan of grammar, even if you don't know what it is you're doing when you come to the Bible, you can't possibly, no one possibly, can interpret the Bible accurately without respecting the rules of grammar. And here's the fact, that if you're not a fan of grammar, but you are interpreting the Bible properly, that just means you're observing rules of grammar whether you know it or not. All right, We do it subconsciously, and thankfully, if you're not a fan of grammar, you could still interpret God's word accurately so long as you respect the rules that God himself ordained in language. But you have to. Uh, It's like when you learn a language, you you understand that. There are certain rules that the language observes and follows. And it is no different with the medium of propositional revelation God has communicated to us in his word, the Bible. So I I don't think I can overstate how important this is to discern properly the authorial intent of Scripture. We need to study grammar. We need to be aware of these rules. 
And a fifth and final reason for studying grammar is that the Bible itself recognizes the importance of grammar. You know, Jesus and the New Testament writers clearly considered grammar important. We see Jesus, for instance, using a grammatical argument in Matthew 22 when the Sadducees come to him and they begin telling him, how can you believe in the resurrection? And Jesus cites from, he alludes to a statement God makes in Exodus 3, verse 6, where he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was their God, but I am their God. And Jesus is inferring from the present tense of that state of being verb that God is presently the God of these human beings, and therefore these human beings have not ceased to exist. They still represent God in some very real way, and God still associates himself with those beings who still exist. Interesting. Jesus also uses a, another argument from a verb tense in John eight fifty eight when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Interesting. It makes a big difference if Jesus says, I was. Before Abraham, I was. That's, just, that's pre-existing Abraham. But he doesn't just say that. He says, before Abraham was, I am. We see other examples of arguments from grammar in Scripture. Paul makes an argument, for instance, in, in Galatians 3 on, on the singular form of the word seed. I mean, there's, I could go on, but basically the Scriptures itself recognize the importance of grammar. So we should recognize the importance of grammar, too. I hope it's plain then. Within the pages of Scripture itself, the interpreter should take seriously grammatical details. But I think it's worth now asking this. How important is a study of biblical grammar? I think it's good for us to realize how practical this is, how rewarding this is. Anybody enjoy working with uh, Legos ever? Right, Legos are amazing things, and even if you never owned a collection, you can at least admire the concept. It really is genius. Uh, the basic elements of grammar that we're going to ex- begin examining today are kind of like the, the basic different kinds of Legos. You can take just about any Lego structure apart, and you can analyze what was that structure in terms of its constituent parts, all the tiny pieces, and you will find that that when you break down these structures into their smallest parts, you eventually realize you're only dealing with the same basic parts. And when you take the same relatively few basic parts and you combine them in certain ways, you can create virtually anything. And it's the same way with words in many respects. That you could take all this language and these, the books and the things God has said, and if you break it down in terms of its smallest parts, you'll realize that God is using the same basic parts, the same basic building blocks. You see, words are building blocks, the building blocks of meaning. And to illustrate some of this, I want us to just take a moment to get the basic idea of how important and practical this is. And let's consider a well-loved text, Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. We're going to try to to first get more of a big picture here, because I don't want to just jump into some of the particularities of grammar without us realizing, once again, why we're doing this, how rewarding this is. And I want to get a big picture of how practical grammar is, and then we'll, of course, dive in for some, some more details. So this is our text that I want us to just use as a case study. Philippians 4, verse 19, Paul writes, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So 
I'm going to ask you some questions that relate to grammar here. What is the subject of the sentence here? Who is, we could say it this way, who is performing or receiving the action? God. God is the subject. So he is the focal point of this statement. And uh, in this case, then, God is the one performing the action. And how does the writer, Paul in this case, modify or qualify the subject? My. Okay, with this personal, first-person personal pronoun, and my God. Does that make any difference? Absolutely. That's very significant. What is predicated about the subject? Or another way of stating it is, or we could even say, what is the verb? What's the action that God, the subject, is performing? Supply. Will supply. All right, will is, a, is this auxiliary term, but this idea of he will supply. That's the, the verb, the action. Verbs are very important in our study of the Bible. What is the relationship of the subject to the action? I guess what I'm after is the, the voice of the verb. How does God relate to the action, will supply? Would it make a difference if Paul said, am I God will be supplied? <laughs> Versus, am I God will supply? It's a big difference, huge difference. God is not being supplied. God is doing the supplying. This is an active voice verb. And how is the action portrayed? Is it past, present, or future? Would it make a difference if he says, God, am I God has supplied all your needs? Versus, am I God will supply? Absolutely. Some of you are shaking your heads. And you know, there are statements in Scripture to that effect. That God has given us everything we need in Christ Jesus. But the reality here is dealing with something that God will do for these people. So that's significant. This is something we want to be aware of as far as interpreting what Paul means by inspiration of the Spirit of God. What is the attitude of the subject, God in this case, toward the action? Does Paul say God might supply your needs? Does he say God could supply your needs? Is he demanding here that God supply all their needs? No, he simply states God will supply. This is the mood of the verb. Does it make a difference? Yeah, Big difference. Absolutely. These are grammatical details. Now, how does the writer modify or qualify the action? All right, stay with me here. Look, look at the action. We said the, the verb, the action that God is performing is he will supply. How is that modified in this text? Uh, so he tells us how he will supply and according to the riches of his glory. Second line there. In Christ Jesus. This is all part of a, what we call a, it's an adverbial phrase. And it is modifying, it's, it's describing how God will supply our needs. Does this phrase, according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, does that add any significant meaning to how God is supplying all these needs? Yes. It's everything. It's huge. This is Bible study we're talking about. This is extremely practical. How this phrase is related to the action of the verb will supply is that it qualifies how God will supply our needs according to his riches. What riches? He adds another prepositional phrase. Riches of his glory. These aren't necessarily material things, the things that the world is after. These are the riches of God's glory. Glorious riches and they are 
provided the, or they are sourced in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say it's sourced in your own inner self. You know, you just got to draw it out of yourself. It's sourced in Christ Jesus. This is a great phrase that is emphasized throughout the New Testament, in Christ. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. These are prepositional phrases that matter. And just to give you another example, if you look down, you could look down to verse 10. Paul says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Would it make a difference if Paul had said, I rejoiced in my circumstances? Yeah, no, by the way, there would not be anything wrong with rejoicing in your circumstances, provided you are also rejoicing in the Lord. But that's the whole point of Philippians 4. Really, this, this whole paragraph that Paul is preaching to the Philippians right now, and it's that you must find joy in Christ. And so the, the phrase I'm just drawing your attention to, in the Lord, modifies the action rejoicing. It tells us how we are to rejoice, how we must rejoice. All right. Let me just ask this. Uh, what is the object of the sentence here? Somebody's already brought it up. And my God will supply. What is, what is receiving God's action in this case? Needs. What is God supplying? Needs. And how are the needs modified? It is not just any needs, but all your needs. Does that make a difference? <laughs> Those adjectives are really encouraging. So this is how we realize as we go through any text of scripture that grammar is important. It matters because God is orderly. And when he gave us scripture, he did so using the language that he himself authored. These rules God authored. And so if we want to understand God and his word, we must pay attention to the details of the laws that he ordained in grammar. So if you can see, grammar makes a difference in an author's meaning, and it's grammar that helps us answer all these kind of questions we've been asking of this text. Some of you may not even, if you're not even a fan of grammar, again, you wouldn't even have to know the term subject or verb, but when I start to ask you questions about who's performing the action, things like this, just because you have a thinking mind, you can answer those questions. So what I want to do now is ask, what should you know? Because we're all in a class on hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. What should we know to better interpret the Bible? We want to properly interpret the Bible. What do we need to know about grammar? Well, we should know the basic elements of grammar. We should know them because by knowing the, the tiny blocks, again, that the, the little building blocks of meaning and how they work, I believe we will be more careful and intentional in our interpretation of the Word of God. So we're going to spend some time the rest of today looking at the basic elements of grammar. And then what we will do, we won't be able to do it maybe so much this week, but this week and next, is also know how to identify these elements in any text. It doesn't do you really any good just to know the basic elements of grammar if you can't identify them in a passage, right? So we want to know both those things. All right, so let's look at the basic elements of grammar. And again, if, if some of these things are a little overwhelming, thinking, oh, man, I don't want to be back in grammar school. Pastor Nathan, it's okay. I'm not uh, planning in this 45-minute lecture that we're all proficient, we're all brushed up in grammar, but hopefully you're, again, thinking about some things that you need to be more mindful of in your study of the Bible. 
and how orderly God is when he assembled the language of Scripture. So here's the basic elements of grammar. I'm going to give you uh, some different categories here. First of all, we should start with the parts of speech. These are the basic building blocks of human thought. Parts of speech. And I believe I may have eight or so listed. I believe they're all in your outline, so you wouldn't have to write these down. But we'll consider them in the context of different scriptural passages. The first is a noun. Uh, it's very basic, right? A noun identifies a person, place, or thing. And, of course, we can break down nouns into improper nouns and proper nouns. Improper nouns are general. There's just nothing unique about them, per se. It would be like talking about a man. There was a man called John. Well, man is an improper noun. And there are also proper nouns. When the Bible says that there was a man named John, we recognize John is a proper noun. We capitalize it. It is not just any man. It's a unique man. But those are nouns. Nouns are person, places, things. Nouns, also articles. Articles are important. These tiny little words. In English, we have indefinite articles like a, a man, but then we also have definite articles like the, if it's different, if we talk about a man versus the man, right? And in scripture, it's very important that we pay attention to articles. Articles are these little particles, these little tiny words that come before a noun to show whether it's specific or general. And by the way, in Greek, it's amazing how many functions an article can have. I think that's one of the rewarding things, by the way, of studying a biblical language is you learn that God knew what he was doing when he chose the languages he chose. Hebrew being a very pictorial, graphic medium through which to just communicate so many narratives and stories and poetry in the Old Testament. And then Greek, which is so precise. It's, it's amazing how you can be so particular with the Greek. And it was perfect then for precisely describing to us the doctrines of the faith that we have really uh, advanced in the New Testament. Let me give you some examples of how important an article is. When you're reading in John chapter 1, verse 21, John the Baptist is asked, are you the prophet? They didn't say, are you a prophet? They said, are you the prophet? Now, the fact that they said, they asked John the Baptist, are, the Jews were asking him, are you the prophet? tells you they were looking for a particular prophet. What prophet? That begs the question, right? Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 18, you'll see God promised he was going to send not just any prophet, but the prophet, one like unto Moses. That's the prophet they are referring to. The article clues you to that. John would later say in John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God. Jesus wasn't just any lamb, not a lamb. He was the lamb. Jesus would say in his trial, we looked at this uh, some time ago, I tell you that you will see the Son of Man coming. Jesus didn't refer to himself as a Son of Man, but the Son of Man. And there's a major theological difference. So articles matter. We should pay attention to them. Another part of speech that matters is pronouns. Pronouns take the place of a noun. Very simple. Now, I shouldn't have to tell you much about a pronoun because some people today are getting very creative with them and raising quite a riot over their preferred pronouns. But in reality, pronouns are actually supposed to make life easier for us, believe it or not. And, you know, this, this saves us the trouble of having to continually repeat someone's name all the time, especially if they have a long name. 
or difficult to pronounce. And so instead of John saying John repented, we would just say, you already know I'm talking about John. We would just say he repented. The word he is a pronoun. John 1.12, John says, but as many as received him, that's a pronoun, and it's a very important one. He says, as many as received him became the children of God. Whoa. Had the right to become the children of God. Very important pronoun. Who's it referring to? The antecedent is Jesus Christ. So pronouns matter. Also, adjectives. Adjectives modify nouns. Jesus, in Matthew 7, talks about the wise man and the foolish man. So man is a noun, but the words wise and foolish tell you what kind of a man Jesus is talking about. Is there a difference? A world, an eternal difference. What a difference an adjective can make. Don't say they don't matter. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Man, you better hear those adjectives, right? These are adjectives we want to characterize our service to God. Verbs. A verb is another part of speech. And verbs are exciting. Verbs have to be some of the most exciting words because they're action words. They're what gives us the movement. Uh, They describe the action, or we could say condition, as we'll see later, the state of being of a noun. Verbs are exciting then, and and they make a world of a difference. 1 Corinthians 15.3 tells you Christ died for our sins. Died is an action. It's telling you what Christ did. And there's an infinite mystery of agony in that verb and we'll talk more about verbs but here's an important state of being verb to consider philippians 2 11 says that every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord he is lord that's who he is that's a very important verb adverbs should be simple enough right they are adding something to the verb adverbs modify a verb they modify the action we read in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul says, rejoice. How? Rejoice always. Always is an adverb. It tells you how we are to rejoice. Very important. Philippians 4.4 says much the same thing with more detail. So what difference an adverb makes when you consider it in Scripture and in your Bible interpretation? It just it changes so much if you pay attention to these details, if you know what these words are doing. Prepositions. I have a couple more I mentioned here. Prepositions are small words, but they make a big difference in the text, in the meaning of a sentence. Prepositions show the relationship of a noun or pronoun to another word. And we'll discuss them more in detail. In Philippians 4.4 4 again, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. That little tiny preposition, in the Lord, we said, makes a huge difference. So you have to pay attention to these tiny words, these prepositions, because they will dramatically impact how we understand the Bible or misunderstand it. And lastly, I'll just mention for parts of speech, there are other ones we could pay attention to, but I think these are the basic ones. Conjunction. Conjunctions, they are words that join words or phrases together and show how they are related. Very important. One of the most well-loved conjunctions in all the Bible is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. You know, after describing how 
we were dead in trespasses and sins, and we were walking according to the course of the world. We were by nature children of wrath, even as everyone else. The next sentence begins in verse 4 with a contrastive conjunction. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, by the way, because is another conjunction of his great love, with which he loved us. Here's another conjunction. Even, this is an emphatic or concessive conjunction, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Wow, if you will pay attention to conjunctions and how the conjunction functions, you will dramatically understand the Bible better. You will be rewarding yourself. So thank God for conjunctions and that we can understand them in Scripture. They make a huge difference. It's well worth being familiar with these basic building blocks because, like I said, if you take apart the Lego construction, however big, however daunting, you're going to find out it's basically assembled, it's made up of these relatively few parts. Amazing. That's the genius of, of language that God has created. Now, the other thing I want us to examine, I'm going to try to keep a track on time here, We've seen the parts of speech. I want us to pay attention to the units of speech. This won't take so long because I only have three for you here. The units of speech are what the parts of speech combine to create. So we looked at eight different parts of speech, but here's what those parts of speech can assemble to create. They create these units of speech, first of all being a phrase. A phrase is a group of words containing no verb. So we would have examples like where the scriptures talk about the gift of God is eternal life. That phrase, that, that, just those few words, the gift of God, that is a phrase. How is that a phrase? Well, do you see a verb in there? No, there's no action. There's no state of being verb. So it's a phrase. When Paul describes himself as the chief of sinners, that's a phrase. Phrases are a group of words containing no verb, but clauses, clauses are different. Clauses are a group of words that do contain a verb. So let's consider some examples of a clause. Paul talks about praying always. Praying always. By the way, praying there would be a participle, but it's a verbal word. And so that would be a clause. It's not how big a collection of words we're dealing with that differentiates these. But a clause will have a verb, a phrase will not have a verb. Paul says in Romans 5.1, We have peace with God. Is that a phrase or a clause? Well, it's a clause. And we know that because there's a verb there. We have peace with God. So we have phrases and we have clauses. But there's a third unit of speech, very important, and that is sentences. uh, A sentence is a group of words containing one or more clauses that expresses a complete thought. So you can have long sentences where you keep adding on clause after clause after clause, and then you can have short sentences. The shortest sentence in the Bible, uh, well, I should say the shortest verse in the Bible, at least, is in John 11, uh, verse 35, where you have Jesus wept. That's a sentence. It's also a clause. You have Jesus, the, the subject, performing this action. Then you have the longest sentence being found in Ephesians. It's actually Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3, all the way through 14. It's the longest sentence in the Bible that I'm aware of. 
and it's a very long, in fact, in the English translation, you might have, the translators, depending on your translation, will insert periods or different punctuation, but in the Greek, it's one long sentence. And that's important, that's worth knowing, because it's one complete thought. So a sentence is a group of words containing one or more clauses, and these clauses, however many there are, one or many, they work together to comprise a complete thought. Psalm 10, 16 says, The Lord is king forever and ever. That's a complete thought. That's a complete sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a sentence. So that's the units of speech. We've seen parts of speech, units of speech. I have a few minutes, so we'll get in here to the third element I want to examine from grammar, and that is sentence structure. Sentence structure. Every sentence consists of two basic parts. What are they? Subject and, well, subject and predicate. So there's a subject, there's, there's the focus of what it is you're talking about, and then there's the predicate, that is what you predicate about the subject. And this is, again, a rule of grammar that if you study any language, all language groups, wherever the order is of subject and predicate and all, they all have it because this is a rule of, that God has instilled in creation. So again, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. That's a sentence. Jesus is the subject. Wept is the predicate. It, it's a verb, but the word wept really is predicating something about the subject, Jesus. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, if we were to want to know the basic sentence structure of this simple sentence and uh, this simple thought in, in Psalm 23, the Lord is the subject there. Really, Lord is the noun, right? The is an article modifying Lord. Not just any Lord, the Lord um, is my shepherd. And that whole rest of the of the, the sentence is my shepherd is predicating something about the lord the verb there is is but everything would that falls it would be considered the predicate if that makes sense one more example here uh, consider proverbs 1 7 the fear of the lord that's the subject really the subject in a grammatical sense will be the word fear okay but the word the is is qualifying this fear or, or definitizing it that article, and then of the Lord. That's a prepositional phrase, but it's all modifying this fear. What fear? Not fear of bugs, not fear of snakes, okay? Not fear of grammar, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, is is the verb, state of being verb, and everything that's following it here is the predicate because it is predicating something about the fear of the Lord. Now, you might think I'm an absolute geek for just bringing this stuff up to you, but I got to tell you this. If you will think this way and train yourself to think this way about the Bible, you will find your Bible study will be a lot more intentional, will be a lot more calculated, and I, I would warrant you will make a lot uh, less mistakes in interpreting the Bible if you will simply follow the rules of grammar. But this is basic stuff. So it does matter. There's an order to sentence structure and what God's doing in the Bible. Now what I want to do now, I just have a minute or two, but... We've kind of looked at uh, some of the sentence structure. I want to explain some of these 
parts of a sentence, the parts that comprise a sentence, is how I want us to think more about function. So we talked about nouns, but I want us to consider the, the subject, the idea of the subject. The subject is the focus of the sentence. The subject is really the main focus of the sentence that we're describing. And so, uh, let's see, uh, when we say, God so loved the world. God is the subject. If we say, we love him, we are the subject, right? The subject is uh, the main focus of the sentence. Again, it's found in any language that you can examine. And then we have verbs. Verbs would be another very important function in a uh, understanding a sentence structure. Verb is what makes our sentences exciting. It's what brings them to life. It gives us action. It expresses an action or state of being. And I want us to park on the verb for a little bit. We're probably not going to get past much. But a few things you should know about a verb. And I don't believe I was able to fit all this in your outline. But when we come to a verb, we first want to understand, are we, are we being given an action about the subject? Or is the, is the verb giving us a state of being? So consider Genesis 1. Verse 1, in the beginning, God created. That's an action verb. God is creating (laughs) by fiat. How exciting. But we could say God is creator. That would also be true. God created. We could also say God is creator. If I say God is creator, that word is is giving us the condition or the state of being about God. If I say God is Good. I'm predicating something about God's nature, his character, his state of being. So verbs can be an action verb or they can be a state of being verb. That's one of the first basic things we would recognize as we're examining verbs. Another thing that's very important to note about verbs is their tense. Okay, verb tense. And in English, at least, the, the tense relates to the time of an action. I actually have kind of action there because when you study Greek and Hebrew, this is one of these interesting differences in the language that their tense in a Greek verb tense, the, the interest of the author is more upon the kind of the action and not just the time. But that's for another time. If you're curious about, you can ask me about some of that. In English, at least, I think it's worth noting in your translation, when you come to the Bible and you're interpreting a text, I want you to pay attention not just to the, is this a, the kind of a verb, the type of the verb, is this a action verb or a state of being verb, but what's the tense? Is this a past, present, or future action? If it is an action verb. Would it be different to say, he believed on Christ, versus he is believing on Christ? Yeah, these are, these are differences. He will believe on Christ. That's future tense. These are very important differences. Now another thing about a a verb is the mood. Verbs have moods. They're very moody. And uh, the mood of a verb relates the manner of the action, the manner of an action. The mood of a verb expresses the speaker's attitude toward the action. First of all, the indicative mood expresses real action. I should probably put some of these details more up there for you, but an indicative verb expresses real action. It's action portrayed as real. God said. The sower 
went out to sow. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. He appeared. Those are all statements of fact, statements of reality or expressing real action. The subjunctive mood expresses a potential action in terms of what's possible, wished, or imagined. So Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love. This idea of if, this is hypothetical. Uh, when, when he says, when he's describing this word speaking, that's in the Greek, that's a subjunctive verb. Why? Because he's saying hypothetically, if I could speak with the tongues of men and angels. He's not saying he actually does. Uh, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9.19, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. I want to win people of Jesus. But because this is a wished action, it's, uh, it's in the subjunctive mood. Another mood, so we have indicative and subjunctive, is imperative. This is another verb mood. We all pay attention to whether we, we use the term imperative or not, but it expresses a desired action. It's a commanded or requested action. Jesus says, do not be afraid, Mark 5, 36. Or he tells the Samaritan woman, give me to drink. Now, the interesting thing is you could have an imperative that is a command as a superior talking to a subordinate, or you can have more of a gentle, wishful imperative. Like when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, give me a drink. He's not saying, you, slave, give me a drink. This is a gentle request. This would be like, uh, greet one another. Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples are talking to their superior, and it's an imperative, but they're not saying, Lord, we demand you pray. It's a requested action. Let me consider here 1 John 3. You could go there if you want. 1 John 3, but you could just listen, actually. John says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God, and such we are. Now, there's three different verbs here. The first is the Father has bestowed. So has bestowed is the first verb. And the mood of this verb is simply indicative. It's stating a fact. It's just indicating God has done this. It's not saying God might do this. We hope God does this. We're praying God does this. We're commanding God does this. The mood of the verb, and very thankfully so, is indicative. It means God has simply done this. It's a fact, a historical fact. But he says this, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called. Now, this is interesting. We would be called children of God. This is a subjunctive mood. Why would John use a subjunctive mood there? Well, the answer is, in translating, it's wonder. It's a subjunctive of wonder. He's thinking about God. Why would you do this? How is it that God would call me his child? Amazing. So John's grappling with that, and the grammar reflects some of this. And he says that we would be called children of God, and such we are. Now he comes back to indicative. Just so you're not left so much in wonder that you doubt. We are children of God. Whether you realize it or not, if you you believed on Jesus Christ as your Savior and received him, this is, again, an indicative verb, and it's, it's giving us the state of reality. 
for our lives. So I'm out of time. More could be said, but we're going to have to pay more attention to grammar next week as it is. Uh, In the meantime, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to reach out. Let's pray.